Gospel according to Mark, chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. The Gospel says this, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his, his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This has been a difficult story for interpreters throughout history, really, because it's a moment in the life of Jesus that seems so out of character for the way Jesus is so typically described. He's described as a person, typically, when you hear people talk about Jesus as one who loves and is caring and forgiving and gracious. And yet we have this story in which Jesus is hungry, and so he goes to a fig tree in a season where there should be no figs. And when he finds no figs on the tree, he gets upset I'm, now, we're not saying this is the right way to read it, but it's the way it appears. He gets upset, and so he curses that fig tree for not having figs. And then he goes into the temple, and we can only imagine the way the story's rolling is that he's a little grumpy because he's still hungry. And he just he gets upset with the people in the temple. He chases them out. One of the Gospels says he fashions a whip, and he, and he begins to drive them out. And then he has these terrible things to say, and then they leave. And then the next day, they're walking, and they walk by that same fig tree, and the disciples notice that that fig tree is dead. What are we to make of that story? Well, there are a few things that we need to be aware of um, that will help us at least to understand what's happening in the story. And the first is this. Uh, most of the scholars that I consulted, I think this is just about everybody. I didn't read everything, so I'm sure there are people who disagree. But just about everybody agrees that the species of fig tree that's being spoken about in the story is a type that produces small green figs before it produces its leaves. And those figs are not generally edible. Uh, some call them the male figs. And then the tree produces leaves. Most of those figs will fall off eventually, and then the, the riper fruit will come and be harvestable later. And so we do have to recognize that Jesus' expectation that he'll find some fruit on the tree is a realistic expectation, even though it's not a season for figs. He probably wouldn't find ripe fruit on the tree, but he should find some fruit on the tree. That's an important detail. Secondly, this is not the first time Jesus has entered the temple here in this context. After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when the people were singing Hosanna and he came in on the donkey, he went into the temple then, but he didn't say anything. He just looked around and he left. This is his return. So there's also a lot in this story of Jesus as kind of the king. Because remember, he's the Messiah, the son of David, the heir to the throne of David. And it's very typical throughout the First Testament for the king to come and evaluate the health of the temple. And so Jesus has arrived, he's looked it over, he went home. He thought about what he saw maybe, maybe he prayed about it, we don't know. But he came back this next day. And now he's ready to tell him what he thinks about what he saw there. And so he begins to discuss what's happening. Now, a couple of details also that help to fill this out. 
the temple in Jerusalem had a very large outer court, a smaller inner court, and then it had all the working pieces in the middle where the Holy of Holies was and they kept the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrifices were made. That outer court, which was by far the largest part of the temple, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And by the design of the temple that we find in Exodus and other places, uh, that's where the nations were supposed to come to worship the God of Israel. So that's what that court was for. And then the inner court was for Jewish people, Israelite people, Hebrew people to come and worship God, and then the sacrifices were made in the innermost section. So you had these three tiers. Now what's happened here is that they have taken that outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and they're now using it, at least temporarily, as a marketplace. Meaning this is where they'll come and change their Roman money into temple money. It's where they'll buy the animals for the sacrifices and so on. Now this is pretty new in Jesus' day. This was not always done. As far as we can tell historically, this began in 30 AD. And what we have here is Jesus, if this is the last year of his life, which I presume it is, this is probably 33 AD. So this practice of putting all these things in the outer courts of the temple is about three years old. And Jesus is criticizing what they're doing there, but he's not the only one. There's a lot in history of criticism from Jewish people about this practice. They were not all uniformly agreed that this should be done in the temple. And so Jesus is not so much revealing some new corruption that's been true for a hundred years. This is a new thing, and he's weighing in with some of the people. That's important too. And then finally, when Jesus wants to tell them how he feels about what they're doing in the temple, he quotes a passage from Jeremiah chapter 7. You've made my father's house a den of robbers. So Jesus doesn't have to preach a long sermon because he's already told you the sermon you should read. It was one preached hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7. So that's all kind of the bits and pieces. So what's at stake here is a very important moment in the life of Jesus. Because up until now, we don't know how Jesus feels about the average person in Israel. He's met a lot of sinners. He's met a lot of people who are doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. And he's forgiven them, and he's been very gracious, and he's spent time with them. And there's not a lot of judgment coming from Jesus. There's a lot of love and forgiveness and grace. And how do we interpret that? Because Jesus, up to this point, his eye has been on the powerful people. He's been arguing with the Pharisees. He's been arguing with the teachers of the law. He's been disagreeing with them. But for the average common folk who are living in sin, Jesus has been very, very gracious. And you could almost believe up to this point that their sins don't matter to him. That he really doesn't care that they're sinful. But something is going to happen here in the temple. Because as much as you and I might want to associate worship in the house of God with powers and structures and authorities, the truth is, this is where the average people came to worship God. Jesus' evaluation of the temple will be his evaluation of the heart of the common people of Israel. He's going to finally tell us what he thinks of all these folks he's been forgiving. All these folks he's been showing grace and mercy to. He's going to come to the temple where they worship. And he's going to tell them how he feels about their worship. And of course... He says, you've made my house a den of robbers. Now, in order to understand that phrase, 
we have to go back to Jeremiah. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to mostly just explain what's at stake in, in Jeremiah's sermon. There are a lot of similarities between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is prophesying at a time where the wickedness of the people of Israel has reached such a fever pitch that God has decided to hand them over to their greatest enemy, the people of Babylon. And Jeremiah comes to preach against the temple in Jerusalem, which was Solomon's temple at this time, and to accuse them of falsely worshiping God, and for that he's going to destroy the temple, which happened when Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out the temple in Jerusalem and the city in 586 B.C. So Jeremiah's sermon and his criticism of the people of Israel is very important because it's the same criticism Jesus makes. And just like in the days of Jeremiah, just a few decades after Jeremiah preached a sermon, the temple was destroyed, just a few decades after Jesus preached this one, this temple was also destroyed. So there's a lot of correspondence. And the accusation that Jeremiah made against the people of Israel, and Jesus seems to be implying is still true in his day, is that they had put all of their energy into leaves, and there was no fruit. It was a big show. Now, he says den of robbers, and that's important, because he was not accusing the people who were selling animals and all that. He's not accusing them of being crooked. What he means is that they were doing criminal activities in their everyday lives. Robbers don't go to a den and rob themselves, right? The den of robbers is not where they rob themselves. It's where they hide their loot. The den is the place the robbers go to avoid detection. So they can't be found out. By calling the temple a den of robbers, Jeremiah was accusing the people of thinking because they came to the temple to worship, all their bad deeds would never be found out. That they could hide their wickedness behind their piety, behind their sacrifices, behind their worship. And as long as they were worshiping and putting on the, go the good show, as long as the leaves were in bloom, everybody would think the tree was healthy and they would never be caught. That was Jeremiah's accusation in Jeremiah chapter 7, and Jesus quotes from it. And so the story essentially is about Jesus coming to a tree and recognizing that that tree was dying. Jesus comes to this tree and the fact that there's no fruit on it means this tree is dying. But it's not clearly dying because it's got leaves. And it looks healthy. But Jesus knows it's not healthy. And so Jesus prophesies as much as he curses that this tree will never bear fruit again. And the same is true of the temple. When he comes into that temple and he looks at the worship of the people, all these people he's forgiven, all these people who you might say, yeah, the Pharisees are kind of corrupt and evil because the powers are always evil. But the average person was authentic in their relationship with God. And when they worshipped him, they loved him. And he could see to the heart. And he was so pleased with the average person. He's just so angry with the leaders. Until he comes to the temple. And he exposes the entire heart of the people of Israel for what they are. They're hypocrites. They're fakers. They know how to put on a show. But inside they are just like their leaders. Dead men's bones inside of whitewashed, tomb, whitewashed tombs. We are not accustomed to wanting to be in this space with Jesus. 
Now, some of us like to think of Jesus, humble Jesus, meek and mild, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, who forgives the sinner, who says when people want to slaughter the woman committed with adultery, he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, and then nobody will do it. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is never violent. He's never angry. Like, like he, he, he's, he's aggressive with his words at times. Brood of vipers and things like that aren't exactly nice. I wouldn't like to hear them. But, but he's not a violent person. We don't have any examples of Jesus ever throwing anything or hitting anything or, or going after anybody or pushing anybody. We just don't have any of that. He's, he's, which is why the argument for pacifism seems to have a good space in Jesus until you get to this story when he's whipping and chasing. And so we've tried to avoid this story. Some folks would like to believe that this is all Jesus was. And these tend to be angry folks. These tend to be folks that are upset about a lot of things. And then there are others who they just don't like the picture of Jesus. This is aggressive. This is not the kind of God I can get behind. And so we like to read that story like it was kind of a, a, a performance. Like he doesn't feel this way. He's just kind of acting out a parable. But the truth is, he's not angry. Jesus doesn't get angry. The truth is, he's not violent. Jesus isn't violent. These tend to be the polar ways. You read all the commentaries. It's either, let's go kill the wicked, or this is an act for our benefit. He just wants us to know he's serious, but he's not really angry. What we're doing, I think, in this story, is we're trying to avoid a very painful and very necessary reality. And it's this, and then I'm going to explain it. When Jesus looks at us, He sees it all. You see, we tell ourselves a lot of fictions that we can carry with us through this whole story if we can avoid this one chapter. We tell ourselves a lot of fictions about love being blind, about God forgetting my transgressions. And what we actually want to believe is that when He looks at me, He doesn't really see me. He loves me so much that His love blinds Him to my true faults and character. And up until this point in the story, it, it kind of looks that way until he enters worship with them. And then he calls it like he sees it. And did you notice their response to his honest evaluation of them? They wanted to kill him. You see, as human beings, we may love Jesus. We may want his forgiveness. We may long for God. But just like is true with our own parents, we deeply want Him to approve of us. We want Him to look at us just as we are and to say, you're good. But you see, Jesus, when He looks at us, there's no hiding. This happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They ate of that fruit, they sinned, and the first instinct they had was to make clothes for themselves. And we have been hiding ever since. We are ashamed of ourselves. But in this temple scene, he turns his full face on the people 
and he gives them the worst news they could have imagined. You are every bit as bad as you thought you were. He doesn't tell them anything they don't know. But they're hoping he doesn't think it. As naked as we may be at times in our lives, we're never really naked, are we? We're always hiding. But by the stare of Jesus, everything is exposed. And so as much as we may want what Jesus offers, most of us are running from his line of sight. Somehow we know he's going to see us for what we are. And he's going to say what he said to them. You're just a leafy tree. No fruit. And in this temple scene, you and I, let's be assured, he will see us for what we are. And then maybe what we hope will happen next, if we have the courage to stand before His gaze and accept His evaluation of us, what we hope is that the prognosis will be good. That He'll look at us, and after seeing all that, He'll say, I love you anyway. That's not what He says. He looks at this temple and He says, Yep, you're as bad as you thought you were. And... You're going to have to die. But you see, this story does not make sense until we see what happens next. Because after Jesus sees everything about us, after He penetrates the heart of Israel and He judges it, and He says, there's no saving this thing. It's corrupt to the core. These walls must come down. After He says all that, you would expect that the inspection is over, Jesus has decided we're not worth the effort, and you'd think the ascension would happen right now. He would just, boom! And we'd go, what's next? And within a breath, fire would fall and it would be over. Right? That's what we would expect. But this God looks at us right through, sees it all, condemns it, calls it sin, and tells us we're irrecoverable. And then he dies for us. See, that, that's love. He doesn't love you as you are. He doesn't even love what you are. But he loves you. So much that in spite of that terrible diagnosis, he lays down his life for us. And he takes us on the cross, and instead of saying, I'm done with you, you're not good enough, I'm out of here, he says, let's die together. Let's die together. And then let's see what's next. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means accepting his judgment. That's what we mean by dying to ourselves. It means that there's no recovering what we are. If you and I want to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, make me the perfect me I can be, we'll be terribly disappointed. They would have loved a better temple, a cleaner temple, a purer temple, a shinier temple, a more holy temple. They would have loved that. Just sh shine up the temple, Jesus, and we'll be good. And he says, no, 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 no. We're going to break that together. And there's who you are, you haven't, you haven't met that person yet. And I'm going to introduce you, if you'll follow me, to who you are. 
a difficult moment to accept that there's no saving us. That what we need is resurrection. There's nothing impressive about the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. That had happened before in the story. What's impressive is that he resurrected from the dead. That when he came back, he didn't have the same body. That he had an immortal body. That he entered into rooms without having to open the door. That he still had the wounds, but they had no power over him. This is the thing that impressed the disciples. Not simply that he had come back from the dead, but that he didn't come back the same. You too have a resurrected body, hidden with Christ in God. Who you are is yet to be seen. And if we can capture that, then that version of us, hidden with Christ in God, that is already glorified, that is already immortal, that is already set free, that version of ourselves can begin to grab hold of us and we can see it begin to blossom even now in this poor soil. And that's holiness. So are you following Jesus? Do you really want to? We hate Him, folks. We hate Him. We love Him, and we want to love Him, but we also hate Him because He knows what we want no one else to know. He sees what we hope nobody sees. And His prognosis is the one we have feared our whole lives, that we are irreparable. But He rose from the dead. That's our hope. And we can start to live out of it now. We can start to see this broken, terrible, fleshly vessel begin to live like the spiritual, free vessel it will one day be. If we believe. And so Jesus comes to this temple, and He curses that fig tree, and He tells humanity what we all feared was true, and we hoped we were wrong about. That God sees, God knows, and God has already decided. But He died for you anyway. He died for me. Because that is not the end of our story. We are here to decide if we want His future. He did not put us here to live here forever. He put us here to prepare for forever.